friends, welcome to Bring a Friend RUF Night. Uh, if this is your first time at RUF, we really are glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Sammy, I'm the campus minister, and uh, thanks so much for coming. Uh, we really do exist. We are here. Our kind of slogan is we have a heart for the gospel, uh, which just means that we are so bad that Jesus had to die for us, but that we are so loved, Jesus was glad to die for us. And we have a heart for this campus. And so we're here for you guys, and we're really glad that you're here Uh, We've been going through this semester uh, through the Gospel of John in a series that we're calling it uh, Love in the Ruins. And basically what we're doing is we're looking at how Jesus loves uh, a broken people like us in a fallen world week by week. And tonight we're coming to the end of John chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 to 25. So I send your bulletin. Uh, If not, you can break out the smartphone app. Or if you brought a Bible, you're you're the real MVP. So turn there. John 2. Starting verse 13. So the Passover of the the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciple remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, who do you think you are, Jesus? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let me pray for us, and I want to unpack this passage a little bit tonight. Let's pray first. Um, Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it as a gift to us to show us yourself. Lord, more than anything, my hope, my dream, my prayer for tonight is that you would become more real to us. Lord, you are real. You, um, You have risen from the dead. You have ascended and even now are seated at the right hand of the Father. You are the Lord and the ruler of all. And Lord, uh, if we're being honest, a lot of us come into this room and we don't feel that. Um, Some of us struggle even to believe that. We have questions about it. And Lord, I thank you that you are a God who welcomes us in our doubts and in our struggles. You welcome us to bring them to you. And I pray that in this place tonight that you would be the one who uh, meets us in our doubts and struggles. That you would meet us in those places where we're afraid to trust you. That you would meet us in those places where we're still not so sure about you. And that you would reveal yourself as not just the one who, as we looked at last week, is the Lord of the wine who comes to bring the joyful kingdom our hearts long for. But you're also the one who loves us enough to confront us. You love us enough to bring truth to bear in our lives. And so I pray, Lord, that you would do both of those things tonight. And we pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen. So some of my favorite videos ever made are, uh, there was a church probably 10, 15 years ago called Vintage 21. It's in Raleigh, North Carolina. 
And they did these videos where they basically took these old Jesus movies and they, um, they were doing a series called The Real Jesus. And so what they did was they took these old Jesus kind of gospel movies about the life of Jesus. But then they dubbed their own voices over the video, like scenes or clips from the movies. And what they were trying to do is kind of show how Jesus, the Jesus that we sometimes imagine is different than the Jesus who is. But there's this one where um, they dubbed over Jesus and he's gathering the disciples for the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins, he starts by saying, you know, here I am, I've shown up and I've come to tell you everything you've done wrong since the last time I saw you. And then he goes around critiquing each of the disciples. So he goes up to Thomas and said, Thomas, I saw you slow dancing a little too closely to that girl the other night. He goes up to Peter and says, Peter, you know what you did, but I just can't say it because I'm Jesus. And then my favorite one is he goes up to John and said, John, you drank too much wine last night. Not too, too much, but just enough to make me angry, which is my favorite. And I think the thing that I love about these videos is they they show that contrast between the Jesus that we sometimes want to be or imagine to be and the Jesus that Scripture presents to us, the Jesus that actually is. And I think we have a, a passage tonight that is showing us a Jesus that, if we're being honest, I'm not so sure that we want Like the Jesus of last week who shows up and saves a party and makes 15 kegs of unbelievable wine and is all about feasting and joy. A lot of us can be like, yep, I can get behind that Jesus. He seems pretty incredible. But the Jesus who shows up in the temple and begins just Liam Neeson taken four style cleaning house, turning over tables, literally has a cord of whips and he's whipping the people out of the temple. A Jesus who shows up with holy wrath, who, who shows up to clear house and to disturb and disrupt our lives. I'm not so sure that's the Jesus that we want. And yet, I hope tonight that I show you that this is actually part of his work of love in our lives. That part of Jesus' work of love in your life is to disrupt your life and to turn over the tables of the things that are keeping you from worshiping and loving and giving your life to God. The way I want to do this text is just to think uh, that Jesus really comes and he overturns three tables in our lives still. That Jesus comes and part of his work of love is to overthrow tables in our lives, to disrupt our lives in three ways. And there are three tables I want to look at. First is our view of God. Second is our view of ourselves. And then thirdly is our view of Jesus himself. So first, he overthrows or overturns the table of our view of God. I already kind of mentioned it. Most of us don't know what to do with this passage because we don't know what to do with a God who gets mad. In other words, how can we're kind of cool with a God of love, who is all about love, but we're not so sure, if you're like me, we're not so sure about a God of anger, righteous anger, a God who shows up and has a real kind of holy wrath. I think that's where a lot of us look at the Bible and think, especially the Old Testament, how can we get down with that? God's showing up and bringing judgment, or God's showing up and disrupting in a judgmental or a judging kind of a way. Uh, a few years ago, there was a clip that I think really gets behind the way that we don't like this God, the way that we don't like this idea of God. Uh, Victoria Osteen, a few years ago, Joel Osteen's wife, she had this video that went pretty viral where she basically in the video just says, do you, do you, do you want to know what makes God happy? And she basically says, whatever makes you happy is what makes God happy. So basically, you don't need to wrestle with the question. Whatever it is that your heart desires, whatever it is that makes you full of joy, full of life. That's what God wants for you. And I wanted to be like, I've got some questions, right? Just a few questions on that. But what happens if I want something that's not good for me? What what happens if I want something that maybe is good for me or a good gift from God, 
but I become so obsessed with it, it becomes an idol and I become enslaved to it. Uh, what happens if God tells me no on something or crushes one of my dreams or brings something painful into my life? What do we do with that? I think the subtle lie that she's getting at that is a lie that we are so prone to believe is that God exists for our comfort. That God exists purely to serve my wishes and my desires. Uh, I think about it like this, like as if God were reduced to, I have this favorite pillow at home that my wife, man, is a nasty pillow. Like I've had it for about 20 years now. I love the thing to death. My wife keeps trying to like buy new pillowcases for it. But I'm like, don't even do that. I love the way it smells. I love that it's a little bit dirty. I can see my greasiness on the pillow. It's weirdly comforting to me. I'm just going to put that out there. But I think sometimes we think that maybe God is like that or whatever it is for you, your favorite pair of sweatpants. My wife has a pair of sweatpants that are, have holes in them. And like I wish sometimes secretly in the night I could just cut those things. But then I know she would probably leave me. Uh, or a favorite movie. Or weirdly enough, my freshman roommate, I don't know if you're having some roommate troubles. My freshman roommate had uh, this teddy bear that he brought with him to school. We lived over in what is now the honors dorm in the old honeycombs. Its name was O-Bear. And uh, he just had it with him. And I was like, cool, cool. This is welcome to USC. Living our freshman year dream. But I think when you think about maybe if God exists, the lie that we believe that God exists for my comfort, it would be like if my freshman roommate had taken O-Bear, was its name, with him to class every day, and then began turning to O-Bear to know what to do with his life. Like, the ridiculousness of... If, a God, if God exists purely for my comfort, if he exists purely to serve my dreams and wishes, then he can't ever tell me no. He can't ever disagree with me. He can't ever confront me. He certainly can't ever get angry. And I think that's why we, when we get to this text, we have to understand what's going on to understand why is it that Jesus is so angry? Uh, we have to understand why he got angry. And I think to understand that, you have to understand what's going on with the temple. So the temple, just to put it in context, was the place where people showed up, Jews and Gentiles, to be in the presence of God, to bring sacrifice and to make uh, room for prayer and to be in God's presence. And what Jesus is so mad about is that basically in this temple, you have to understand to understand it, that there was an inner court for the Jews who were steeped in the traditions and rituals. And then there was this outer court for Gentiles who were less familiar with the faith. And so, but what God was doing and what he, why he had it constructed that way is he still welcomed them to come in their messiness, to come in their immaturity, to come in what they didn't know and meet him in a very real way. And so what makes Jesus so mad is there, here are these religious vendors and he's not mad that they're there. Like they were there to provide two things. They were there to provide the actual animals for sacrifice and they were there to exchange currency so that people could bring whatever currency they had and exchange it and buy these animals. That was a good thing. But what he's mad at is they have set up their shop in the middle of the court of Gentiles. In other words, they were setting up shop in a way that was distracting, in a way that was really indifferent at best, or just manipulative at worst. And this is what pisses Jesus off so much. Because initially, or essentially what they were saying, is we don't really care that you're here. We don't really care about you. We don't really care that you know or have an experience of the true God all we really care about is that we, your money. We'll take your money, yes, please. But we don't really love or care about you. 
I'm not sure if you saw this article. It was, um, I think it's the best journalistic piece I've seen in like years and years. But Elizabeth Brunig, if you follow her, she writes for the Washington Post. She did this story uh, over the last three years that broke, or she finally published it last week. And it's a girl that was in her high school back in Arlington, Texas. A cheerleader, her name was Amber Wyatt. And she is uh, 16 years old back in the day in high school. And she is the girl that she's on the cheerleading team. All she wants in high school is to be the popular girl. And so one night she goes with the rest of her cheerleading friends to this massive house party that where all these athletes and just the, pop, the cool kids from school are. She has way too much to drink. And these two guys tell her, hey, get in the car with us. We're going to go and we're going to pick up some more beer. And then we're going to come right back to the house. So in her drunken stupor, she says yes. Gets in the car. They keep driving. They keep driving. They end up in this shed, this hunting shed in the middle of nowhere. They invite her in where they proceed to brutally rape her. And it was uh, the kind of thing where they eventually got back to the party. She still in this drunken stupor. She tries to fight them off. She eventually can't. She comes back and she tries to tell the only adult at the party there what's happened. Some mom of one of the other rich kid friends. She doesn't really listen to her. She sleeps it off with another friend. She keeps trying to tell her story, but no one wants to hear it. The cops kind of listen to it. They don't take it seriously. No one gets charged. In the meantime, the high school, as these rumors have started, the high school revolts against her. And they have everyone in their car and their lockers writes Faith to kind of say, who is this girl trying to destroy these school kids? Faith stood for F Amber in the head. And so she gets completely ostracized. It ruins her life. She ends up spiraling into addiction. No one believes the story. Charges are never pressed. Nothing ever happens. So Elizabeth Brunig, remember she was there. She was a freshman at the time. And she started asking the question, what happened? How did we all not look at this thing and take it seriously? How can something like this happen? When you read the story, I mean, I, I definitely commend it to you. You read it. It's brutal. It is hard to read. It is, if this is part of your experience, please be cautious with it. But it is the kind of thing that makes you, two things happen when I read it. You get your stomach churns at how disgusting what these boys did. And on the other hand, you feel really, really angry that no justice any way came to them at all. And I think if we, in our humanity, in our own limited way, can look at that and it makes us angry, how much more the God who made and loves this precious girl, Amber, how does he feel, do you think? Love, listen, the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And part of what Jesus is doing is he's saying, what you are doing to these precious Gentile worshipers is not okay. And I'm going to do something to wake your conscience up to the not okayness of it. You see that? The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. The opposite of love is not caring. The opposite of love is not getting angry. Real love gets angry when someone you love hurts someone or hurts themselves. You get angry not because you hate that person, but because you hate what they're doing to another person or you hate what they're doing to themselves. Listen, Jesus isn't turning over these tables in this cranky explosion of wrath. In other words, God doesn't have a temper, but God does get angry. Because he loves us that much, he, will, he refuses to let the cancer of sin eat us alive from the inside out. And so he shows up in the Son of God, Jesus, and he shows us that he's going to disrupt this indifference that we can have and this selfishness that we can have. So first, Jesus comes and he overturns our view of God. But second, he comes and he overturns our view, the table of our view of ourselves. 
So the reason I wanted to read past our passage into verse 24 and 25 is because I think it holds the key to understanding yourself and me understanding myself. Where Jesus says, basically, he did not entrust himself to man because he knew what was in the heart of man. In other words, what he's saying, here's what you have to understand. He's saying he knew what was in the heart of these vendors. That they weren't there to worship. They were there to consume. They were there to take advantage of these other human beings. They were there to make money in their case. We do it in a lot of different ways. Uh, This is the distinction. Part of what Jesus is saying, part of why he has this show of anger, is he's saying there is a profound difference between being a consumer and being a worshiper. In other words, he's saying that sin reduces us to, we we were made to worship, which is why we still do worship something. In this case, they were worshiping money. We were made to worship God himself. Jesus has come to restore that in us. But what sin has done to you and me is it reduces us to consumers. Let me, let me unpack this for a little bit. A worshiper is someone who enjoys everything with an eye to God. Their heart is full of thanks because everything they have is a gift from God, family and friends especially. Their main passion is life, in life is to know God and to enjoy him forever and help others do the same. That's what a worshiper is. A consumer, which... A consumer is someone who uses everything including people, and worst of all, God, to make themselves feel better, to get what they really want. Their heart is empty and indifferent because it's full of greed and jealousy and lust and selfish ambition. Their main objective with people is to get out of them what they feel they need and then throw them away like a used piece of toilet paper. That's what a consumer does. And Jesus is clearing the temple because he's saying, listen, I'm not here for consumers. In fact, here's what I have to say to consumers. And then this powerful show of emotion, he means to wake us up to this question. Are you worshiping God? Or are you just consuming him to make yourself feel better? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Or are you using your neighbor for yourself? Are you moved to, to, to bring the glory of God into every part of life? Or are you using every part of your gifts, every part of your personality to make yourself feel better, to make yourself feel good? That's the question Jesus is confronting us with in this show of anger. Uh, my favorite scene, one of my favorite scenes uh, in movie history is this movie called The Big Kahuna. It came out in 1999. And it's a story, it's basically it was a play that became a film. And it's these three uh, co-workers who sell lubricants to factories with machines, basically. But it's two older uh, salesmen who are kind of taking on this younger, uh, arrogant, he's a Christian in the play, which is really fascinating, but he's the most pharisaical, elder brotherish kind of Christian, self-righteous, arrogant, proud, all of that. And they're trying to basically bring them under their wing to show them you know, what needs to be done in this field. And there's a scene that happens toward the end of the movie where uh, Bob is the young, arrogant Christian's name. Uh, and he's talking to Phil, who's actually played by Danny DeVito, who was one of my favorite actors ever. And basically, Bob is uh, just, he's starting to criticize their other partner, Larry, and Phil has had enough of it. And Phil, in a similar way to Jesus here, decides he's going to lay the truth down on him. He's going to clear some tables. Right? I have a friend who used to say this was, you know, there's, there are conversations, there are parts in conversations that are called table clears. Where you're just, like, there's that awkward moment that's just too real where everyone kind of gets up and leaves. This happens, I don't know if you're in my, in my friend group, this happens a, a fair amount where someone says something that's too real and everyone is like, all right, see you guys next week. 
This is one of those table-clearing conversations. Here's how it goes. I'm going to read it. It's long. It's in your handout, but it's worth it. So Phil is kind of letting Bob have it. He says this, I believe that somewhere deep down inside of you is something that strives to be honest. The question you have to ask yourself is, has it touched the whole of my life? That means that you preaching Jesus is no different than Larry or anybody else preaching lubricants. It doesn't matter whether you're selling Jesus or Buddha or civil rights or how to make money in real estate with no money down. That doesn't make you a human being. It makes you a marketing rep. If you want to talk to somebody honestly as a human being, ask him about his kids. Find out what his dreams are just to find out for no other reason. Because as soon as you, this is the catch for us, because as soon as you lay your hands on a conversation to steer it, it's not a conversation anymore. It's a pitch. And you're not a human being. You're a marketing rep. Then he, he really brings the nail down. He says, the hammer down. He says, you were asking me about character. We were speaking of faces. But the question is much deeper than that. The question is, do you have any character at all? And if you want my honest opinion, Bob, you do not. For the simple reason that you don't regret anything. And then Bob says, you're saying I won't have any character unless I do something I regret? And Phil says, no, Bob. I'm saying you've already done plenty of things to regret. You just don't know what they are. You've already done plenty of things to regret, but you just don't know what they are. What he's saying is, wake up, Bob. You've been a consumer. You've been trying to sell Jesus and force him down the throats of your friends, but you're not really loving them. You're not being a human being that cares about them. You're being a marketing rep. And part of what Jesus is saying here is, listen, I'm not looking for marketing reps. In fact, here's what I have to say to marketing reps. He brings out the whip, clears the table, overturns the tables. That's what he has to say to marketing reps. He's not content with us being marketing reps. Who treat God as a means to the end of our feelings or experiences and who treat other people as projects. Some of you might be here and you felt that. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're like, hey... I know exactly what you're talking about. I wish my Christian friends would just ask me questions about my life instead of laying their hands to steer a conversation and treating me like I'm less than human. We're guilty of that if we're being honest. So Jesus, he comes to overturn not just our view of God, not just our view of ourselves, but he also, last thing I want you to see is he comes to overturn our view of himself. He comes to turn over the table of our view of Jesus himself. Here's what I want you to see is that Jesus, he says so many enigmatic and kind of crazy things in the Gospels, and he does it again here. Because he basically says, listen, tear down this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they say, the temple we're standing in, do you realize it took 46 years to build it? And Jesus says, yeah, that's not the temple I'm talking about. I'm talking about the temple of myself, which is why John says that the disciples later realized that the temple that, was, that Jesus was talking about himself, and he was talking about his resurrection. And here's what I want you to see is the temple, think about it. The temple is the place where people went to find God and have their sins forgiven. And Jesus is saying, I'm that temple. I'm the place to come. You've got regrets? I'm the, I'm the place to come and bring your regrets. I'm the place to come and find the forgiveness you've been longing for. And, and in this, this is the question for us, is how is Jesus going to turn you and me, people who, if we're being honest, have been small-minded, selfish little consumers? How is he going to turn us into big-hearted worshipers that give our lives to a mission and a kingdom that are far bigger than ourselves? How is he going to do it? He's verse 17. It's what the disciples say as they're watching Jesus. And Psalm 69.9 comes to mind where they think, ah, 
zeal for your house has consumed me. Literally in the Hebrew it says, zeal for your house has torn me to pieces. And what I want you to see is Jesus didn't just love them enough to clear house, to clean the temple. Jesus loved them enough to become the temple. That zeal for his father's house led him to the cross where he was torn to pieces. That you and I might move from consumers to worshipers, that you and I might be made whole. Um, Iron Giant is the goat of all animated films, in my opinion. Iron Giant, I can't watch it. I watch it with my kids every year. And if you've never seen it, this is a huge spoiler alert, but I'm just going to use it because it it works. Um, End of the film... Iron Giant story is basically set in Cold War, Russia, height of Russian and USA, you know, U.S. tense relations. And this Iron Giant shows up mysteriously in this small town and he befriends this uh, boy named Hogarth. And as they become friends, they kind of run around town together. There's this general who learns about this giant sighting, you know, people have seen him around town and he thinks, ah, this must be some kind of Russian spy. And so basically he's on this mission to find and destroy this giant. Well, the film builds the, the closing scene. In the closing scene, this, this general, this kind of crazed general, has called in all kinds of tanks, all kinds of planes. And they're chasing. They've, they've seen. They've targeted the giant. They're kind of in this big, huge chase down into the middle of the town square. The whole town basically comes out to watch it happen because they're like, what is happening? They're, you know, as towns are prone to do. And as this giant, everyone's gathered in the square, this crazed general without thinking presses the button to fire this nuclear missile. And as the people of the town watch this missile, they start saying to each other, like, it's too late to get to a shelter. It's over. Once this missile comes down, it's not just going to destroy the giant. It's going to destroy everyone. And then, you know, a scene that's still like, like, I literally watched it in Starbucks today and just started, started crying in the middle of that shared in Starbucks like I'm not a crazy person just here to preach the gospel and so i'm watching so basically the giant he looks at hogarth he looks down at these people and then he, he looks at hogarth and says don't follow me he flies into the air he flies into the outer reaches of space and just as this missile is about to come back down to destroy everyone he takes the missile to himself and he explodes into a thousand pieces and i'm like we tears tears flowing why? Because right before he does it, he smiles. And every time I watch it, the tears flow. Because I think about Hebrews 12, where it says about Jesus. Jesus went to the cross with joy. Enduring the shame. And I ask myself the question, what was that joy? That joy was you and me being turned away from a, a wasted life of being small-hearted, selfish consumers and being transformed by his grace. He was consumed. He was consumed by the wrath of God toward what we deserve, that we might become worshipers. And what this means is this is a, this is a passage where Jesus is showing you, he does care. Your sin's a big deal. God cares about it. It's not something we can just shrug off. It's a big deal. But Jesus doesn't just have zeal for his father's house. Part of his zeal was the father's mission. And that is coming into the lives of people like you and me and transforming us, being consumed for us, that we might move from being consumers to being worshipers. Listen, the the best worshipers, 
are people with regrets who have taken those regrets to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that this is the way you have loved us so well. We thank you that you were consumed for us, that little consumers like us, selfish, selfish hearted people, that we might bring our regrets, bring our sins to you and find the forgiveness our hearts have longed for, uh, find the meaning of life that we have, if we're being honest with ourselves, really struggled with, and just be absolutely transformed by this kind of grace that you show to us. Even as you show us the anger that you have for our sin, Lord, we praise you that you are the one who gave yourself for us because you love us. And you come into our lives still in the same way. Lord, I pray for my friends that you would show us the tables that need to be overturned in our lives. You would show us the places where we are consuming, but we are not worshiping. Lord, you alone can do that. We pray for it. We ask for it. We ask these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Thank you guys so much for coming. Pizzas, I think, are here. Hopefully. We're going to find out in a second. Thanks so much for coming to RUF. Hope to see you again.